0: Does your diet need to change in order to meet nutrient
1: requirements as you get older? That is a great question. There are some nutrients where we're kind of short, frankly, even before we're older, and they can often get worse when we're older. And some of them are pretty obvious.
0: Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physician's Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast. Gaunt, Belgium, Atlanta, Georgia, Tucson, Arizona. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 35 of season five, number 334 overall. Eating to age well, that is the topic du jour today. The question is this, does your diet need to change to have a little bit more of this vitamin and maybe a little bit less of that one? And what about fat? And which nutrients are most important for your health as the years roll by? We are going to find out today as we talk optimal aging on The Exam Room Live with the author of Your Body and Balance, Dr. Neil Barnard. And the doctor's mailbag, wide open, stuffed with your questions today as well. So talking about aging, we're going to talk about why appetites might decrease as we get older, and how can you make sure that you're still getting enough nutrients then if you're eating less. Also today, questions about iron and soy, and an interesting note about calcium from Dr. Barnard. Could you still be protected from fractures and have strong bones if you're eating a little bit less than what's recommended? And why could that be? Stay tuned for the answer. First, though, I want to say a huge thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Their support of the Exam Room Live and the Physicians Committee is helping to raise our health IQs and makes this episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund on Line right now at GregoryWriterfund.org. That's Writer Gregory R-E-I-T-E-R fund.org. Time now to raise those health IQs as we learn how to eat well, age well, and stay healthy as the years roll by. Dr. Neil Barnard, my friend, it is good to have you here once again.
1: Great to be with you, Chuck.
0: This is a great question, and I'm so happy that Donna sent this one in. And she's wondering, does your diet need to change in order to meet nutrient requirements as you get older?
1: That is a great question, because needless to say, that's happening to everybody. We're all getting a little bit older. Um, There are some nutrients where we're kind of short, frankly, even before we're older, and they can often get worse when we're older. And some of them are, are pretty obvious fiber, for example. Your average American does not get very much fiber. Fiber is the roughage in beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains. And if you don't get enough fiber, um, apart from the normal constipation and things that we associate with it, the gut bacteria aren't so healthy either without adequate fiber. And that releases all kinds of problems then. okay. so fiber is a pretty obvious one. Another kind of obvious one is vitamin B12. You need B12, you probably know this already, for healthy nerves and healthy blood and supplementing is a really good idea. But when people are older, they can really run low in B12 for a couple of reasons. One is that, if, let's say a person is not vegan and they're trying to get their B12 from meat. Uh, it, well, there is B12 in it, but without a lot of stomach acid, you can't pull the B12 off the protein. And so even though they're eating an omnivorous diet, they're low in B12. Um, if uh, they're on medications, Metformin, most common diabetes medication. Uh, Acid blockers, also really common. Those reduce um, B12 absorption. So so medications can kick in for a lot of older folks. And so they end up being low in B12. And the answer for them is just like the answer for everybody else. Go to your local health food store, go online, go to a drugstore, and pick up the smallest B12 supplement they have and take that. Uh, Maybe just a couple of others, Chuck, that I'm just gonna mention really quickly. Um, One is calcium and calcium is a funny one because the requirements that the government will specify are pretty high they'll say a thousand milligrams or for older people maybe 1200 you think gee there's no way i'm getting there why is it so high it's i believe it's high because the dairy industry has pushed the government to tell people they need more calcium if you look at the scientific literature i would say about 700 milligrams per day is the amount that you ought to aim for where do you get it um, you get calcium, you know this already, uh, green leafy vegetables, number one source, beans also have a lot. Um, and maybe just to, to wrap it up, uh, vitamin D is something that normally comes from sunlight on your skin. The older we get, uh, for a lot of folks, they're indoors uh, more of the time, they're not getting much sun, and so they should be taking a vitamin D supplement probably. Um, the, most doctors will suggest about 2000 international units a day. So. Those, those are some of the key, key issues for folks, uh, nutrient-wise, as they get older.
0: The calcium uh, being, you might not need as much as uh, what, the, what the RDAs suggest right now. That's fascinating. So in the studies that have been published, that 700 milligrams a day, that will protect you pretty well against fractures and all of the other concerns that people have when they're short on it?
1: That's exactly right. Um, if you have very little calcium in your diet, you know a couple of hundred milligrams per day, you are at higher risk for a fracture. And so if you go from 300 to 500 to 600, you're going to reduce your risk of fracture. But once you get to about 700, it's really hard to make a case that going higher than that does any good at all with regard to the fracture risk. And where people run into trouble um, is they're saying to their kids, uh, make sure you have lots of milk because it's high in calcium. And they're just kind of regurgitating the, the promotions they've heard. What do you end up doing? You end up giving the kid all the problems that milk will cause from the saturated fat that increases the risk of heart disease. Milk is linked to long-term risk of prostate cancer. And you don't want to set up your the male members of your family for, for prostate cancer. There's some evidence, not as strong, but, but still compelling, linking milk to breast cancer. So there, there's every reason to not shoot for these really high uh, calcium targets if you're doing it with an unhealthy food like dairy. If you're doing it with green leafy vegetables, there's really not much risk of having a little extra Brussels sprouts or or some broccoli here and there.
0: Yeah, I know my, my granddaddy before his passing, he was really big on getting all of his calcium from cheese. And it could have been a hunk of cheddar or it could have been cheese. Oh my gosh, cheese was in a can. Uh, but he was always like, "I'm getting my calcium," and it, uh, you know, at the time, I, I was like, "Good for you, Granddaddy. This is so good. You know, you're, you're gonna have those good, strong teeth and bones." Um, but man, alive! I mean, just the conversations that you and I have had over the years on this show, I mean, y- there really are a lot better sources of calcium that a person can get than eating cheese.
1: You, you said it, Chuck. I mean, uh, if you had a calcium supplement that was 70% fat, I mean, that is, that is not one you want to choose.
0: Okay, so uh, let's kind of put a put a bow on this
1: conversation here. So uh,
0: we, we've we talked about a lot of other nutrients, but would I be correct in assuming that Kathleen is kind of wondering the same thing here? Would I be correct in assuming that the requirements for things like vitamin A, vitamin C, those kinds of the vitamin K, like they really don't change over the years?
1: They don't change a lot. Um, when the um the U.S. government looks at all these recommendations and they do modify them a little bit here and there. But by and large, uh, after about age 19 or so, they're about pretty much relatively flat for the rest of of time, even when people are older.
0: Here's an interesting one from Lori. She sent me an email and uh, she linked off to an article that said that seniors should increase their fat intake. Do you know whether or not there is any scientific evidence to back that up?
1: Okay, Um, what they're probably thinking of is that when you're older, you're at higher risk of dementia. And the brain uses omega-3s. And so the idea is let's just st- stuff a bunch of fat in the brain and hope that it's that we're going to be protected. What really matters is the quality of fat. It, 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 it's got to be certain types. Um, and the typical fat that's in cheese is not omega-3. The typical fat in a burger is not omega-3. Um, so what a person really needs is uh, less fat overall. Because if you're having a lot of unhealthy fats, it actually competes with the good fats and it will actually slow down the omega-3 production. So you really, you, you, no, no, you, you don't want to increase fat overall, but you do want to make sure that proportionately of the fat you're getting, it's high in omega-3. What do I mean? You take some broccoli, send it to a lab, and they'll say, you thought it was fat-free, but it's actually 7 or 8% of of the broccoli's calories are actually fat, believe it or not. And what matters is that proportionately, the omega-3 is really very high in green leafy vegetables. So not much fat overall, but proportionately a lot of omega-3. And over time, if you eat a lot of those foods, the fats in your body tend to mirror the proportions in your foods. So if your foods are proportionally high in omega-3, you will you will be too. Um, some people will supplement Um, With omega-3s, if you do skip the fish oil, you can get exactly the same thing in a cleaner package with vegan omega-3s. There's DHA, EPA supplements. Uh, Controversial. uh, They probably increase the risk of prostate cancer in men. So a lot of people are not recommending them. But if you're choosing, um, that's, that's what people are looking at.
0: All right, so we're talking about omega three and brain health there, but Troy's wondering about what other nutrients might be important for brain health.
1: Uh, Certain things you gotta avoid, Um, certain things you want to pump in. Um, Number one thing to avoid, and you've heard me say this before, saturated fat. That's the fat that's in dairy, fat that's in in meat. Um, Even your Chinook salmon has a surprising amount of saturated fat strongly linked to dementia, particularly Alzheimer's. The Chicago Health and Aging Project almost 20 years ago reported these findings that people eating the most saturated fat, that means dairy, that means meat, had about two to three times higher risk of Alzheimer's compared to people who generally avoided those things. So saturated fat, avoid. Trans fats, avoid. That means snack foods. It also means um, there are traces in dairy of trans fats, believe it or not. Um, uh, Also to avoid excess iron. Uh, Not green leafy vegetables. They're okay because they have non-heme iron, but uh, meat products have iron. Uh, Animal products have too much copper. Those can damage the brain. Things to take advantage of, um, vitamin E is actually okay, and that's in nuts and seeds. Not a lot uh, because, yes, they are fattening, uh, but maybe an ounce, something like that a day will give you a good chunk of Uh, vitamin E. And vegetables and fruits in general, when researchers look at people who avoid them, people who eat vegetables and fruits, uh, the vegetable and fruit eaters have a lot lower risk of cognitive decline, even if you're just comparing like a person who has zero versus a person who has about one serving a day. So you pump it up, you have two or three servings a day, um, you're getting, you're, you're doing your brain a big favor there too.
0: We're Just talking about copper and and metal in the diet, I want to take a question now from Sheila, who's wondering about iron. She says, should I limit the amount of greens and soy in my diet because they're high in iron? She said she's worried about Alzheimer's risk.
1: Uh, Well, first of all, it's good that you're worried because Alzheimer's is the last thing you want to get and foods do play into it. But the the short answer is no, I would not worry about the greens and I would not worry about soy. Um, But you're thinking right. You don't want to overdo it with iron. The good news about any vegetable source, any plant source of iron, is that it comes in the form of what we call non-heme iron. Um, and that means that it is the type that your body can absorb more of if you're low in iron. And if you're high in iron, your body will actually keep it out. So if you eat lots and lots of green vegetables, your body is monitoring your, yes, this your body actually monitors your iron content, so to speak um and if you need more iron it'll absorb more if you're already iron overloaded it absorbs less contrast that with a steak uh animal products have a lot of what's called heme iron and the heme iron barges into your party whether you needed it or not so so the 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 bad sources of iron are the liver meat products in general um because they have a they they will tend to lead you into overload
0: um and So what what is the limit that we're looking at when it comes to iron? Alzheimer's runs in my family. I know that it runs in millions of other families uh, around the world. So is there a threshold that we should be worried about uh, when it comes to iron? And we also get this question a lot, Dr. Barnard, is if somebody is taking a multivitamin, uh, multivitamin supplement, should they be looking for one that does not have iron in it?
1: The answer is yes. Um, look at the label and uh, one a day and so forth. They, they want to sell you something that sounds complete. They know you need iron, so they throw the iron into the package, and you'll see it on the, on the label. And they know you need copper, so they'll throw copper in there. What they missed is that there is iron in the foods that you're eating, and there's copper in the foods you're eating. So yeah, um, if you want to take a multiple vitamin, go online or go to the store and get one that's marked vitamins only. Uh, and, and they will say that. There are not a lot of them, but, but you'll see them. And then when you look at the ingredients, there's vitamin B12, various B vitamins and, and so forth, um, most of which you're getting from food anyway, so you don't really need, need it. But if there's no added iron, that's good. If there's no added copper, that's good. Now, um, some of the companies like Centrum uh, years ago started to realize that particularly women uh, after menopause their needs for iron changed a lot they're no longer menstruating they're no longer losing iron every month and so you start accumulating it and men have been accumulating it all their life and so they um they took the iron out of say Centrum Silver which is the one for people older so that's good but unfortunately they haven't caught up on copper they still pack the copper in there so yeah pick a mul- if you're going to use a multivitamin pick one that does not have iron does not have copper but you might also ask why you're bothering with a multivitamin anyway. If you just go to the store and get B12, frankly, that's got you covered. Or B12 and D, you probably don't need, uh, your multi.
0: I want to take a question now from Annie, who's watching us on YouTube. This one came in at 12:11 today. Um, we were talking about having too much of a certain vitamin or nutrient in the diet. A lot of that comes from through supplementation, but Annie's wondering specifically, what do you do if you have too much calcium in your system?
1: Too much calcium in your system. I, I guess I'm wondering what, uh, what she's thinking about. Now, if if it's that you got a blood test and it just showed that it was high in calcium, your doctor's going to investigate that and see if there's some other, some other explanation that's, it's, that's not a common finding. And, and your doctor can look to see if there's a physiological explanation. Um, people talk about calcium in a couple of other contexts. One is kidney stones. Um, one is heart blockages. Uh, heart blockages are calcium... They they end up being calcified as time goes on. And the answer to both of these is a healthier diet. If you are taking calcium supplements because you have been low in calcium and you've had fractures and your doctor's got you on a specific regimen, take the calcium with food. Don't take it on an empty stomach. If you take it with food, somehow your body kind of balances things out a little bit. And uh, calcium with food is not associated with kidney stones. Calcium on an empty stomach is associated with kidney stones. So, so have it with your food. Um, but hopefully you don't need a calcium supplement. And hopefully you're getting calcium just from the, um, the levels uh, in the foods that you're eating naturally. Now, one other thing, uh, just one, one last thing. And that's vitamin D helps your body absorb calcium. So when you're talking with your doctor about it, the doctor will look at your calcium intake, your vitamin D intake, which helps the calcium come in and to see if there's anything fluky, hormonally going on that might affect your calcium levels.
0: All right, let's look at another nutrient on the opposite end of the spectrum. So we've been talking about too much of something. Now let's talk about when you may not have enough of something. Janice is uh, wondering, what should you do? What should you eat when your iron levels are too low?
1: Okay, we need to bring in more iron, but we bring it in in a healthy, uh, healthy source. And green leafy vegetables and beans are the healthiest source. I was mentioning earlier that the non-heme iron is more absorbable when your body needs more. Um, some people use the lemon trick, uh, a little bit of lemon juice. Um, any high vitamin C food will increase the absorption. However, let me, let me give you a big caveat here. Um, how do we know that our iron level is too low? If it was just a blood test and your doctor said you're kind of borderline low, Um, If you feel well, if you are not anemic, if you have no symptoms, to be on sort of the low end of the iron window is actually a good thing. That means you're at the least risk for Alzheimer's, least risk for heart disease. Now, if you're frankly frankly low, so that you're anemic and sluggish and so forth, then you've obviously got to take it seriously. And uh, when we're talking
0: about iron and Alzheimer's risk, I always like to also bring up uh, cookware into the equation, Um, brought up saying a cast iron skillet is about the best thing that you could have in your kitchen. Come to find out that's really not such a good idea, is it?
1: Well, it's a good thing to you put a nail in the wall and you put it there and it looks sort of like a, <laughs> a rustic environment and you never <laughs> actually take it down and cook with it. That's fine. Um, the problem is when you do cook with it. Yeah, the, you're absolutely right, Chuck. The, the iron will end up in the food. And so if it's your once every two months pan, big deal, uh, no, no, no real problem. But if it's your go-to pan, which for a lot of people it is, you know, they love their cast iron pan. They use it every day. Yeah, you are getting too much iron and it is absorbable and you don't want that. um, I know this sounds like just too ultra modern, but there is nothing wrong with a nonstick pan. Uh, Very controversial. People remember Teflon, you know, from the 70s that would chip off. And and also as it would heat, it would give off toxic fumes. Um, Those problems have really been solved. And so the modern nonstick pans really are, are quite good. You know, you don't have to use them, but they allow you to escape the iron, you escape the aluminum and you're escaping the added fats
0: couple of quick hellos to some roomies who are joining us live today. GP saying uh, that they're watching the exam room live live for the very first time. Very cool. Thanks for being here. Also want to say hi to Paul, who's watching us from Bracebridge, Ontario, Canada. I hear it's lovely this time of year in Bracebridge. So thank you so very much for tuning in, um, Paul. Uh, Dr. Barnard, let's go back to aging here. Take a question from Greg, who's wondering uh, whether the risk for certain diseases like cancer actually decrease over the age, of 80?
1: Well, kind of a disturbing statistic here, really. Um, The average age for many of the common cancers, um, if you look at lung cancer, breast cancer and these things, it's way up in the upper 60s, typically. So what that means is that half the cases occur before that time and the other half all occur after that time. So when people are in their older years, that's when, frankly, you see a lot of cancer happening pretty fast. There's an exception to that, though, in that sometimes people are killed by other things first. You know, the cardiovascular disease becomes their preoccupation and not so much um, the cancers. But yes, um, cancers can uh, occur more and more commonly as people age. Uh, Partly their defenses, their immune defenses are not as strong. And frankly, their accumulated exposures are are, are worse than ever. Uh, A guy who's been having dairy all his life not going to get prostate cancer when he's 24, but when he's 84, very, it's much more likely. It's the same as smoking. You know, the first year of smoking, your lung cancer risk really low, but if you've been making a career of it, it gets higher and higher and higher. So, so we we don't want to think, okay, I'm up in years now. I can't get cancer. It's, it's always a really good, good time to follow as healthy a diet as you possibly can.
0: Um, I, I think maybe one of the reasons why this question piqued my interest is, uh, speaking with Dr. Will Bolsowitz, I believe he mentioned that past a certain age, really, men don't have to worry too much about getting a colonoscopy. Uh, is, the, is that correct? Am I remembering that, that correctly?
1: Um, that's reasonable advice. Um, and, and it's for, for a couple of reasons. It's not that you're not at risk for colorectal cancer. It's that it takes time for colorectal cancer to develop. And so that's why the colonoscopies are recommended maybe even every five years or, or less often. And because there's a small risk to colonoscopy, n- not a big risk, but there is a small risk. I mean, there is such a thing as perforation and anesthesia problems and stuff. The doctor makes kind of an equation. It says, what's your real benefit? What's the likelihood I'm going to find anything versus what's the likelihood of you're having a problem with it. And once you're really up in years, they kind of decide maybe it's not, not worth it so much anymore. Um, so when people are in their 60s, um, early 70s, the doctors often start slacking off on those recommendations.
0: Uh, Not too terribly long ago, you and I did a show on high cholesterol, a very popular episode. And I'm bringing this question back from it because it's a really important one, especially as we're talking about aging today. And this one is from Nina, who's wondering whether women are more likely to have high cholesterol after menopause.
1: Yeah, they are. Um, Nobody really knows exactly the reason for it. But as estrogen shifts, estrogen levels fall at menopause, cholesterol levels do go up. Um, And the question, of course, is what can you do about it? And you already know the first part of that answer, which is get the cholesterol off your plate. So we don't wanna be having animal products at all. Um, And it's not just the egg that has cholesterol, it's in meats, it's in dairy. And even worse is the fat that's in meats and in dairy, the the saturated fat that I was um, criticizing before. uh, It drives cholesterol levels up, it certainly does. Um, So when you avoid those things, your cholesterol level for for 90% of people, their cholesterol levels fall. That's great. Um, If yours didn't, um, what I would suggest you do is take another couple of steps. One is not not just no animal products, but keep oils really low. Take olive oil, for example. Um, Chicken fat is about 30% saturated fat. Olive oil, better, it's only 14. But if you didn't use any oil, it's zero. Um, so that's another step you can take. And also our good friend, David Jenkins at, um, at the university of Toronto developed what he called the portfolio. And this meant you start with a vegan diet, but you add certain things to it. Soluble fiber. What's that mean? That means oats, you, you know, already know that oats will take a couple of extra points off your cholesterol beans, soy products, uh, have an independent effect, lowering cholesterol. And he found that nuts seem to do that, too. Uh, for example, almonds. Be careful, because if you go too far with the almonds, they can raise your, your weight. But his portfolio of soluble fiber, of uh, a little bit of nuts, of um, soy products, and that kind of thing, really brought cholesterol down really, really fast when done as part of a vegan diet. All right. We've been talking about having too much
0: of a certain vitamin or of a certain nutrient. Now let's talk about having too much of a certain food. Uh, Leonardo Maywin, question of the day for this one. It comes in from uh, YouTube at twelve twenty three. Says, "I love beans, and I wonder if I can have too much beans. If there is an upper limit for consumption of the beans, so is it possible to eat way too many beans, Doctor Barnard?
1: Not if you live alone." <laughs>
0: Asked and answered. Okay, <laughs> have all the beans you want in that case. Not if you live alone. Oh you're my gonna, no,
1: you're you going to be fine. Be- beans do not have any cholesterol in them. They don't have. They have virtually no saturated fat at all. They have iron, but the iron's in the form of non-heme iron. So you really, it's it's, it's hard for you to overdo it with the iron. They're fine, but you, you know you don't want just beans. You know, beans along with grains um, are. That's a a really good complementary relationship. And don't forget the green leafy vegetables and fruits and so forth. So um, you wanna make sure you're not crowding these more humble foods out of your diet too.
0: All right, interesting question here from Elizabeth, one that I've uh, wondered myself as well. Uh, Why are seniors hungry less often?
1: Uh, A couple couple of things can happen. Um, I guess the obvious thing for some seniors, they're not as physically active. Um, you're staying home, you might be watching TV. And sometimes that can be aggravated if people have a physical problem like a joint disease that, that makes them less and less physically active. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, also their hormones are changing and so they're not burning calories off. Even, even with the same level of physical activity, they're not burning calories so much. And then there are certain um, health conditions that can come in uh, for some people, not others. Thyroid disease, for example. And lots of chronic uh, conditions. If people have liver disease or kidney disease, um, their appetite, a loss of appetite, is is a real common presenter, and that's one of the things that doctors will look for. They and with relatively simple blood tests, they can sort those kind of things out. And uh, not to worry you, but a loss of appetite also occurs with really simple, uh, or I'm sorry, really serious problems like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and even certain cancer. So you want to check those out. But but. I think what you're really getting at is why do seniors just lose their appetite? It's really a lack of physical activity and some normal hormonal changes.
0: All right. So if you're not eating as much, if your meals are a lot smaller, then there's a good chance that you may not be getting enough uh, vitamins and nutrients in your diet, reaching those those daily needs. So Tammy has a good follow-up to that. How can you maximize nutrition while still eating a smaller meal?
1: Ah, great question. Um, here's where I think the vegetables come to our rescue. You know, when I was a kid growing up in North Dakota, vegetables were just an afterthought. You had a hunk of like a pork chop or something, maybe a potato, and the vegetables could be carrots or green beans, and nobody noticed if you, eat, if you ate them or not, and nobody, nobody gave them any respect. If you put the vegetables into the middle of your plate now, you're getting fiber, you're getting healthy complex carbohydrates, and you're getting the really rich source of vitamins and healthy minerals that you really need. So um, I would say even start planning your meal with which vegetable or vegetables am I going to really um, emphasize in this meal? And it can be more than one green vegetable, like broccoli, along with an orange vegetable, like sweet potatoes, great combination. And that's where you're going to get the nutrient powerhouses coming in. All right. I want to pivot now and take a
0: question that can really kind of apply to anyone, especially as they're really trying to take charge of their health for the first time. A lot of us turn to these apps these days where you can log every single food that you have and it just spits out. Did you get enough of this? Did you not get enough of that? Diane writes and she says, look, I am frustrated. She says, I log everything that I eat in a nutrient tracking app and I still come up short with some vitamins, how can I get it right? And is it possible that I'm just worrying too much?
1: Uh, You might be worrying too much. Here's the first question that I would ask is if you're logging in what, what you're eating and then you're seeing, am I getting enough protein? Am I getting enough calcium or whatever? And if it says low, the first thing I would look at is what standards are they using? We mentioned this a little bit earlier in today's program, calcium. The U.S. government will say have a thousand milligrams a day or even more for certain groups. It's really hard to defend that based on science. So you might say, well, I'm at 750. I'm too low. Uh-uh, 750 is fine. Um, same with iron. Um, if your iron levels are on the low end of normal and you're not symptomatic, meaning you're not tired, you feel well, there's nothing health wise going on. There's no reason to really be pushing for some astronomical level. Same for protein. Uh, protein has kind of near religious significance for some people. You've got to have lots and lots of protein. You've got to have 100 grams a day. You've got to have 200 grams a day. Ridiculous. Uh, you, uh, an adult woman needs 46 grams a day, according to the government. And even that has a buffer. That's higher than her, her actual needs. Uh, for men, it's 56. So anyway, that's the first thing to think about. Uh, are the standards right or are they exaggerated? And the other thing is to make sure that you're getting a healthy um, mix of things in your diet, and that's four groups. You might know them already. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and the, the bean group, or, or the legume group, beans, peas, lentils. If you're getting lots of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and beans, that nutrient mix is gonna be just about optimal. And don't forget the B12 uh, added to it, And and at that point, you can probably not look at the app quite quite as often as you might be doing now.
0: Betsy, uh, checking in in the chat room, says, uh, look, my appetite is just fine and I'm a senior. She says, look, not this senior. I am literally hungry all the time. So uh, Betsy, uh, probably eating a healthy diet if she's joining us here today. Right. Um Here's a here's another question about menopause. I know that this is menopause is something that you cover extensively in your book, Your Body and Balance. We talked a little bit about it on the show here today, also. But I don't think that we've ever been asked this question in particular. Uh, Donna Fay at twelve twenty eight. She's joining us on Facebook today. She says, "I'm going through menopause. Are grains still good for me?"
1: Yes, they are. In fact, they're 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 more important than ever. Um, and, and I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people particularly in the last what decade or so where low carbohydrate diets have come in um, this f- unfortunate fad has gotten people to, to worry if they eat bread or if they eat brown rice, the idea is it's too many carbs. Carbohydrate is going to be your best friend. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, after menopause, if you're thinking, gee, you know, it's harder for me to, to keep the weight off. I'm, I'm, I'm gaining weight or, or my cholesterol is, is up. Um, grains don't have any cholesterol. They have virtually no saturated fat, so they're they're going to help give you energy without driving your cholesterol up. And the calorie content of them is surprisingly low. Where, where grains get get a bad rap is you put the whole grain toast in the toaster or whole grain bread in the toaster, it pops out without very many calories. It's going to be a good thing to eat, but on goes the butter or the grain that uh, becomes spaghetti. Um, after it comes out of the pot we slather cream sauce all over the top of it or ground beef or oil or something like that it's those toppings that pack in the calories and that was the problem with the baked potato there's nothing wrong with the potato the problem is the butter and the cheese doodles and bacon bits and all this stuff that go on top of it so the fatty toppings are the issue grains are going to be fine for you one small exception uh maybe one in ten people feels better when they don't have wheat the other ninety percent of people perfectly fine with wheat and with gluten. Uh, If, if weed or other gluten products are a problem for you, you may want to avoid them, but for other people, not an issue at all.
0: All right, let's grab a couple of more here before we turn to an exciting article uh, that you uh, published uh, this week in in a journal that I want to ask you about. Uh, But my goodness gracious, we've been talking about plant-based diets this entire time and different nutrients, but the one that hasn't come up yet? protein you knew it was coming to the conversation Um, uh, do protein requirements change for us as we get older
1: you will hear people say that older people should have a little bit more protein and kind of what they're thinking of it is that you, older folks sometimes um seem to lose their muscle mass which is partly hormonal and partly inactivity so it's fr- frankly really good to maintain your activity that's the most important thing The activity then will fuel your appetite and you'll eat more normal amounts of foods. You're going to be fine. Um, But it's a mistake to think, okay, I need more protein because I'm older. So let me have chicken wings or let me have more fish or let me have more meat or dairy or something like that. Because what comes along with the protein? Cholesterol, saturated fat, iron you don't need. Occasional tapeworm, you know these are things. These are things you don't need in your diet at all. So, so the diet should remain 100% plant-based, vegan. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, and of these, the high-protein group is the bean group, and anything made from them, like soybeans that turn into tofu or tempeh or that kind of thing. um, Those are are really quite rich in protein, and uh, you can include them at any age. And if you're older and trying to pump up your protein, that's one place to look.
0: Uh, let's, uh, Laura Harris, 1232, a brave soul admitting her age. She says I'm 41 exercise moderately six days a week. She's wondering specifically at that age and with that level of exercise, how much protein should she be taking in?
1: Well, first of all, you're a young woman and it's great that you're exercising, um, a lot. That's, that's terrific. And I would not, I would not think about it at all. And here's what I mean. Let's say you're out there for a run or a good brisk walk and you know your muscles need more oxygen because they're working, right? How much oxygen should you take in? I don't know. I never measured it. You don't have to think about it. Why? Because your blood, your body is monitoring your oxygen needs. And when you are hypoxic, when you are low in oxygen, your body automatically tells your diaphragm to start (laughs) kicking in. You start breathing much more rapidly. You take in the oxygen and then you breathe more slowly. Your body is pretty smart when it comes to protein needs too, and also caloric needs in general. You could run a whole marathon. You could do that every day um, if you had the energy to do it. And your, you would not really have to plan so much how many calories you need because your body naturally kicks in extra hunger. And along with the natural foods that you're eating, you get the additional, not just calories, not just carbohydrates for energy, but you get the protein right along with it. So your physical activity makes you hungry. The hunger brings food on your plate. You'll naturally pile it higher and protein just comes right along for the ride.
0: All right. I want to wrap up today by pivoting and talking about something completely different. And every once in a while, you know, I'll be thumbing through these journals and I'll see something. And I'll say, huh, That is really interesting. And that happened this week, and it just happened to be an article that you co-authored with Dr. Hanna Kaliova, our colleague. And the headline in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine was, The Role of Nutrition in COVID-19, Taking Lessons from the 1918 H1N1 Pandemic. So you were looking to the past for answers to today. What did you and Dr. Kaliova discover?
1: It's the most remarkable thing. You go back a century, and there was a terrible pandemic, and it was influenza, and it, the, the parallels are enormous. You know, uh, the coronavirus started in animals, too. It started in bats, um, and whether people believe the bats were in the Wuhan market or in a Wuhan area laboratory, either way, it came from animals. Influenza came from birds, and it's, it's a bird born virus, and wild birds put it into domestic flocks, and then it got into the human population. And in nineteen in 1918, we had virtually no immunity to it, and it killed a lot of people, far more than COVID-19. However, there was a lesson. There were areas where people were particularly health conscious, including what at the time were called sanatoriums. Uh, some people, say, with uh, in religious areas where they were... Uh, inside doing uh, good work and studying, but eating really healthful diets. And what they found is that these people really weren't contracting serious influenza at all. Um, Now, you might say, well, they're socially distanced and so forth. But even if they would get it, nobody seemed to need the hospitalizations and so forth. And that led to this hypothesis that arose really back in 2020, as soon as, as coronavirus came in, the hypothesis that if a healthy diet would help against influenza, maybe it would help against coronavirus. And so right away we started to see, yeah, the people who are, are thinner have less risk of severe COVID-19, that if they don't have diabetes, they have less risk of severe COVID-19. And then people did the ultimate question, asked the ultimate question. Forgetting just diabetes and obesity, what is on your plate? And there were two really good studies. One had was it healthcare workers in six different countries, people following a healthy plant-based diet, much less likely to have severe COVID. And then there was the COVID symptom study, half a million participants, huge study, showed exactly the same thing. The more people were plant-based, the less risk they had of severe COVID-19. Caveat to that last study, uh, people who were who are, um, as part of the, the, the healthcare workers study, uh, those who are following low-carb diets, much higher risk of severe COVID-19. So the lessons we learned back in 1918, that there's something about a healthy diet and a hygienic lifestyle that just seems to, to allow people to repel the, the serious illness in the, in the face of, a, of an infection, does apply to COVID. Now, the reason this really matters now is that COVID the COVID story is changing every couple of months. Different viral variant, Uh, different vaccination uh, prevalences, uh, different exposures. Everything is kind of a a changing landscape. But the one constant here is that people who eat in a healthy way and who are able to use a healthy diet to keep their bodies healthy have much, much, much better odds of if they catch the virus, of throwing it off and not uh, not letting it become serious.
0: Total, you know, what if type of question here. Uh, as we record this here, there have been more than 6 million deaths worldwide from COVID 19, nearly a million here in the States. If, and this is a, a huge if, but if everyone were eating a plant based diet, how do you think that number would change from what it is today?
1: At the risk of sounding overly strident, first of all, that number would have been zero. Um, if people had left the animals alone, um, animal products that carry animal viruses into the human population have been to to blame for all kinds of problems. Um, And so uh, back with the influenza from 1918, as I mentioned, it it came from people who had flocks of birds that they were going to eat, and you have a big outdoor flock, and the wild birds uh, join with them and spread the wild bird virus into the flocks, and so people eating poultry, um, the, the farm workers and farm dwellers were the, the first nodes of that infection that then spread, spread out from there. And we see this over and over again with one pandemic after another. People want to eat bats and other animals, and they maintain markets for them or they're curious about them and they want to experiment on them in a laboratory, whatever. When you bring the animals into your proximity because you're gonna abuse them or eat them or whatever, um, that's when the viruses jump. If you don't do that, the viruses don't jump. Okay, but that's not exactly what you asked me, Um, Chuck. You're saying, let's say say you're gonna get the virus, but if people were really following a truly healthy diet, Um, would the risk of severe illness go down and by how much? The answer is, yeah, even in the most conservative projections, the reduction in severe illness would be somewhere on the order of between 40 and 70% reduction, and perhaps even a greater reduction in that. Um, If you factor in then also the reductions in diabetes, the reductions in obesity that the diet brings, the the risk reduction is just absolutely huge. It's sort of like what happens to lung cancer if everybody stops smoking. Wouldn't go to zero, but it goes dramatically down. And so when people are on healthy diets, the, the payoff is just huge for the infectious diseases as well as the, the other chronic diseases we always talk about.
0: That is a very interesting conversation. And maybe it's one that we can uh, circle back to at some point. Um, My goodness gracious, a lot of great information there. uh, Dr. Barnard, thanks so very much for joining us today, my friend.
1: You bet. Thank you, Chuck.
0: A link to Dr. Barnard's article on COVID and the Spanish flu can be found right now in the episode notes if you would like to give it a read. You know, there were a lot of questions left over in the doctor's mailbag today. So we're going to do a follow-up show when it comes to healthy aging. Still so much to get to because we all want to age as healthfully as possible. Right? And beyond trying our best to avoid getting sick and battling a disease, we also want to do our best to look our best. So maybe that means fewer wrinkles or less age spots. And also important is maintaining that ability to just keep on moving, right? We want to be able to ride a bike or go on a long walk well into our golden years. I mean, how great would it be to hop on a Schwinn and then roll into your 90s, literally roll into your 90s? That is a plan I can get on board with. So we're definitely going to do a follow-up to today's show. And if there's a question you would like to drop in the mailbag for that, go ahead and send it to me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Chuck Carroll WLC. And you know, whenever we talk about aging, I also think about studies on longevity. And I think that my favorite is probably the Adventist Health Study. And what researchers there found was that on average, Women who eat a vegetarian diet live six years longer than those who eat the standard American diet. And now get this for vegetarian men, that number climbs all the way up to nine and a half years, nine and a half years. Now here were the biggest five factors in that study. According to researchers, they said, look, if the person never smoked, they weren't overweight, they exercised frequently, they ate nuts on a regular basis, and they followed a vegetarian diet, they're going to be in pretty good shape. So when you put all those things together, the participants who went five for five with those factors, they lived not six years longer, not nine years longer, but approximately 10 years longer than those eating the standard American diet and living the standard American lifestyle. That is a huge difference, and it's not an anomaly either. You have massive studies conducted around the world, different countries in different corners of the Earth, who now for years have been reaching a similar conclusion. What you eat really does matter. And after hearing all of this today, If you're feeling inspired, you're feeling educated, and you're ready to roll into your 90s on a bike, why not continue to raise that health IQ with us? So go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also do us a favor and leave a five-star rating. Before we wrap up today, I want to say a huge thank you one more time to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Their support of the Exam Room Live and the Physicians Committee is helping to raise our health IQs and made this episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder spelled R-E-I-T-E-R fund dot org and for today that is going to wrap things up I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and helping to raise our health IQs and teaching us how to eat well to age well and for everyone here at the Physicians Committee I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll thank you so very much for listening and remember As always, keep it plant-based.